It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now... Your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour Top 10 with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. I hope you enjoyed that, Dean Haglund. That was a little bit of the theme from The Blob that played us in. Ah. <laughs> uh... You know how we used to sing that on card trips? <laughs> oh, and hold hands. <laughs> I don't remember the holding hands part. Was I drunk? <laughs> no, I mean, not our, not each other's hands. Oh, all right. Severed oh, hands. Okay. Severed hands that we would collect <laughs> along the road in rural locations. <laughs> which leads us yeah. right into the theme of today's show. And by the way, hey, to everyone in the USA, uh, happy Labor Day. Uh, and to the rest of you, happy Monday. Hey, look at that. We had been Labor Day. No, what? Go, please. No, it could be Labor Day. Yeah, you're right. It's not Labor Day everywhere, is it? No, thanks for backing me up on that. Yeah, sorry. uh, This show is all about uh, horror films. We'd been uh, threatening to do this for a while. This uh, in year 10. Uh, it's kind of my dream that we do 10 top 10 shows to commemorate year 10 of your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. And this oh, would, look at you go. This would be the first of them. Uh, we are eight weeks out from Halloween, so what better time than now to discuss our top 10 all-time horror films so that uh, our uh, loyal listeners will have time to maybe avail themselves of some of these titles in anticipation of All Hallows' Eve. Yes. What a perfect, uh, perfect way to celebrate All Hallows' Eve than just sit down with a ton of horror movies. So get those Netflix cues handy, and uh, we will begin. Do you have any uh, honorable mentions, uh, Dean, uh, that didn't make your list, but that you uh, kind of felt like, boy, I wish I could have this on the list? Well, yeah. I mean, well, there's the one that stuck out, because there, there's so many here, you know, that either scared me, that I have a personal connection to, uh, that I remember seeing as a kid. And, um, and then there's the one that both you and I enjoyed, Cabin in the Woods, which uh, sort of put an end to all teen horror movie woods, uh, put a, sort of put a kibosh on watching all of those uh, with that hilarious. But I, 
it's not really a horror movie. It's a comedy uh, about well, horror movies. It, it's interesting because it kind of plays to me the way that uh, Blazing Saddles played in the early 70s, right? It, it, Blazing yeah. Saddles was not a Western. It was a comedy parodying Westerns. But damn if it didn't actually, at the same time, give you some of the enjoyment that you would get from Westerns. And Absolutely. I feel that that's very much the case with Cabin in the Woods. It's taking the piss out of it, but at the same time, it's actually letting you enjoy some of the things you enjoy about horror films. <laughs> exactly. So it's sort of a, an outlier that stands alone, and yet at the same time, it didn't... It, could have, it was on my list for a long time and then didn't make my list. So now it sits in parentheses on a pedestal and or at the bottom as its own special honorable mention and or perhaps my favorite horror movie ever if I'm looking at it not it, in a scary way. Right, in a certain perspective. You know, I, I guess one of the ones that I believe is uh, worthy of honorable mention uh, is more of a gothic horror film, and I I never really quite what knew what to do with gothic horror because these are not uh, the sort of stories that are really quote unquote scary. And uh, maybe my favorite gothic horror uh, is from Guillermo del Toro, and it's his most personal film. It was The Devil's Backbone, set during the uh -huh. Spanish Civil War at an orphanage. Uh, it was a two thousand one film, and like gothic horror, it's more about dread and sadness and tenderness than scares. It's a, great, right. it's a great film, but I wanted to delve more into genuine nightmares with my list. Right. Yeah, so therefore, you leave that one, yeah. Well, see, you know. so some of my horror is a personal, the, the horror from the personal vision to me is more scary that this is going yeah. through some Well, some no, I mean, this is, why, this is why instead of talking about what we mean by horror and what we're looking for, I thought it might be interesting to talk about our outliers that didn't make the list because we're already getting a sense, uh, like for you, that uh, yes, Cabin in the Woods can't exist without the horror genre. So therefore right. it is part of the horror genre, but it stands outside what you want to be celebrating at this point. And for me, that's true with, uh, uh, you know, Devil's Backbone. I, I probably love it as a movie more than I love some of the ones on my list. But in terms of what I wanted to celebrate today, it didn't seem to fit, uh, fit in. I, I had a couple others that uh, I, I couldn't... There were two in particular I could not decide between... And so I left them both off. Uh, oh. And it was both the 1956 uh, uh, original and the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Ah, very good. I, I mean, I love, so. I love both of them, right? I love the Don right. Siegel original that uh, played on the Red Scare of the time and on, our, and on our, our, you know, need to see the strangers among us, right? And yeah. then the remake by Philip Kaufman, which got an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay, right? Both were huge hits, and the remake uh, deals with the cultural and um, emotional uh, upheaval that was going on in the 1970s, uh, right? When we're getting in touch with our feelings, which, of course, is 
very, very scary to a kind of right. traditional, masculine, stiff upper lip kind of crowd. So they, absolutely, you know, they, they, uh, they're such wonderful companion pieces to each other, and I, I didn't know how to separate them. So neither made my list, but again, both worthy of, of mention in this. Did you have any uh, other, any others that uh, didn't quite fit the list? Well, yeah, some of the classics. I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, what Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, uh, as funny as it is, uh, uh, Costello, uh, Bud Abbott and, and Lou Costello are a comedic team, but him demonstrating fear in a comedic way actually resonates as really scary for me as a kid. Because I used to love watching comedies and then watching this one where he meets uh, Frankenstein and his genuine fear in the coffin scenes where the candle's moving is probably comedic to me now and an adult audience, but as a small child watching it at two o'clock in the morning by myself in my basement in uh, Canada, that was truly genuinely frightening. So uh, you know uh, what? I, I I agree with you. I in fact I would say that it was really my introduction to Frankenstein as something really affecting and haunting yeah. was that movie uh, because it would be years later before I could really appreciate like Bride of Frankenstein. Right. Exactly. So all the Frankenstein, like if that's your, if, if <laughs> Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein is your way into Frankenstein movies, then yeah, it, it takes a while for that to, to reconfigure. And, uh, and I actually have, Bride of Frankenstein because I think that's such a great movie, but I I don't know if that's uh, if that sits on my list or not. Well, so um, so I have one other that I wanted to mention. I I, I couldn't believe that I was leaving John Carpenter uh, off the list. I loved uh, John Carpenter when I was coming of age, and you know who mm -hmm. contributed more to to horror during his prime than 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 he. Um, right. And and my favorite of his horror films is actually the one that was probably his least successful at that time, panned by critics, another remake, uh, this time The Thing from Another World. Um, he, and it's John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Uh, was that panned? It, it I, was, I thought that... It was panned at the time, uh, and it did much lower box office um, than expected. And so wow. it was panned, I believe, because it was too apocalyptic and too nihilistic uh, right. for critical uh, tastes at the time. And it did lower than expected box office because that was a time where we wanted certainly our extraterrestrial movies. There was a little movie that came out earlier that month called E.T., oh, and yes. even our horror films like Toby Hooper's Poltergeist, we wanted them touchy-feely at that point yes. in time. And this right. badass, apocalyptic, nihilistic film just didn't jibe with that at the time. Uh, of course, the years have been kind to it, and it has been reappraised as, as, as a classic of its genre. But I, I would have that as my favorite John Carpenter, but I just didn't have room for uh, a Carpenter film on here, and I wish I did. Oh. It probably would have been number 11 on my list if I did. But why don't we start with our top 10, and why don't you uh, take it away? Okay, well, for me, uh, there's no better experience if you're living in Los Angeles 
than uh, to head over to Disney Hall on All Hallows' Eve and uh, see a screening of John Barrymore's 1920 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with full pipe organ accompaniment uh, playing. Uh, I saw this, I don't know, eight years ago now when they first opened it, and um, it's a lovely remaster, and it is genuinely uh, uh, a deep dread, like a terror that only can come from uh, the egomaniacal John Barrymore actor uh, as he as he does this. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Uh, silent, uh, the silent film. Uh, when they show it on TV, it's done with uh, just a, a tinny uh, recording of a of a symphony orchestra. But to hear it with the full pipe organ going on in Disney Hall with the thousand ranked uh, pipes going and laying it on. Uh, thick it is an amazing visceral experience and so dr jekyll mr hyde from 1920s mine number 10 uh, i wonder it, it, that might be our oldest film on this list maybe which one uh dr jekyll the one you just mentioned might that be the oldest film that we discussed today Maybe. Uh, it might be. Uh, I got Nosferatu on here, too. Oh, what so a little bit that? older. Well, so we go yeah. from a really old title to probably, I would argue, the most recent title that we'll talk about, and that is oh. uh, my number 10. It's uh, one of my top films from last year. Uh, it, oh. it follows. From, oh, yes. From writer-director David uh, Robert Mitchell. It, it stars a largely unknown cast. Uh, the plot, for those who, don't, uh, who haven't seen it, it follows a girl pursued by a supernatural entity after a sexual encounter. She learns, right. she learns that you have to pass the entity off to another sexual partner or it will kill you. And if it kills that partner, it will then resume its pursuit of you. Uh, Mitchell conceived the film based on recurring dreams he had in his youth about being followed. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's fantastic because already you can tell from that plot line that the subtext is rich with thematic possibilities. And, absolutely. And, and critics have had numerous interpretations of the film uh, in regard to the source of it in the title and the film's uh, symbolism. They've interpreted yeah. it as a parable about AIDS, about mm -hmm. other uh, transmitted STDs. In infections, yeah. Yeah. Uh, about the social uh, perceptions of the sexual revolution, of primal, media. Uh, primal anxiety about intimacy. But what I love is that Mitchell's more interested in it as a dream. It came to him as a dream, and he tries to keep it in that context. It's not... That the that the that the dream can only be understood as a dream. No, it's it's realistic, but it's set in a realistic world of a dream. Um, and in that place, for me, what I love and what I've always been struck by is that uh, the impulse, i.e., the sexual impulse that brought on imminent death for this girl and for these other people a sexual procreative impulse is the same impulse that will keep them alive. Um, yeah. And deep in our psyches, we understand that life is what will ultimately kill us. <laughs> <laughs> right? The irony. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is why more than death, what we often fear is life itself. 
And uh, so that really resonates with me on a, a you know on level of the psyche, furthering the dreamlike quality uh, of this, like I said, nevertheless realistic world. And we've talked about this before. Is I love that the props and the production design, uh, and its tech and the technology owe to no one time or era. It's from all times and all eras. Yeah. You have vintage TVs, but then within antique-looking compacts. Uh, you find that they contain mobile devices. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the film was shot very effectively uh, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, and uh, the, they used wide-angle lenses to give the film a quite expansive look so that you had to check constantly these wide, deep frames to see if anything out of the ordinary was taking place. Um, yeah. and, and it really increases the, the, the tension. Um, it, it, it's reminiscent of uh, John Carpenter, who I mentioned, and also uh, George Romero, uh, especially in terms of the, the film's compositions and its visual uh, aesthetic. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, the, uh, oh, and I, and I will say, as uh, just a little foreshadowing, the climactic showdown with it also evokes the number nine film on my list, which I believe oh. it overtly references. So should I mention oh. what that is? Should I just... Yeah, because I'm trying to think. I, I saw it recently, and I loved it, and I agreed. So that, uh, I that, actually thought it was shot in the 70s, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It, it's, it's, it could be. I mean, that's what's so cool about it. Um, yeah, but, but the, now... The, 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 I me. think the climax at the pool intentionally evokes let the right one in oh my god that's my number nine let the right one in well but the swedish version not the american remake. of course the 2008 film from sweden from writer john linkfist and director thomas alfredson who of course has gone on to direct the terrific remake of tinker taylor soldier spy um mm -hmm. Uh, Let the Right One In is actually one of several films on my list that deals with the conflict again between primal sexual urges and the responsibilities bestowed upon us when we quote-unquote come of age. Right. Yes, a coming-of-age tale that is actually uh, filled with not just the dread of coming-of-age, but what that responsibility means of being an adult. You know, we talked when this came out about how much uh, it spoke to you, uh, you know, this boy uh, and, and your upbringing in snowy yeah. northern climes and how you really could relate to uh, some of this, right down to kind of the, the meanness uh, of some of the people in this rural area, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the opening scene of a dark winter's night and uh, him standing at the window with the... Uh, TV on. I believe it's set in 1986. It's 81. Which again, it's set in 81. 81. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly like uh, around my time and uh, evoking just that uh, longing to get the hell out of there and at the same time the dread of a uh, winter's night, a <laughs> cold, cold winter's night. Uh, all of it done so well. We talked so much about how it evoked your childhood that when I saw it again, I was I was surprised to find how much I related to it, and I realized that in 1981, I was the exact same age as the protagonist in this film, right. Oscar. And it was a time when I was truly experiencing the nuclear nightmares alluded to in this film. 
I mean, I right. really, when I was 12 years old, I was really scared that death was about to come from above and was only 30 minutes away. And I planned out how I would spend that last half hour I was given. Um, yeah. Of course, uh. what's fascinating about that is puberty and the onset of puberty, which is where the character was when I was at that uh, in 1981, is uh, death on many levels, right? Our bodies are being taken from us. So uh, we're yeah, right. Death is imminent. And uh, anyway, uh, tell for people who don't know, uh, Oscar is this 12-year-old boy. His classmates regularly bully him. He spends his evenings imagining revenge, uh, collecting clippings from newspapers and magazines about grisly murders. And one night he meets uh, Eli, who appears to be a pale girl his own age. Uh, right. and, and she has recently moved in next door apartment with an older man uh, and um, who we think at first must be her father. Uh, and Eli initially informs Oscar that they cannot be friends. Over time, however, they, they do form a close uh, relationship. And Eli learns that the boy is being bullied and encourages him to stand up for himself. Uh, and at the same time, we begin to learn that uh, the older man kills people to harvest fresh blood for Eli and that Eli is much older than she appears. Right. And yes. And that as a true vampire lore, you, uh, the vampire cannot come into your home. It has to be invited. Right. Hence the title. You have to let the right one in. So what I, what I love though, is that, uh, we are cutting back and forth between these two storylines and they're both very scary realities. The vampire yeah. reality, but then the boy who's getting bullied at school is terrifying. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that both of those, yeah, that are, are sort of uh, mirror each other because Eli's caretaker is also uh, dying, isn't he? Like, I've, it's been so long that I've seen it now that you've well, let, oh, I think it. I think we might be getting to... to sp- to spoiler territory, we're getting very far <laughs> into the... Uh, so, oh, yes. Uh, I, I love, obviously, the snowy, desaturated look. I love the restrained, thoughtful relationship that develops between these two kids. I love that the mm-hmm. film is poignant and touching and haunting, and one that certainly anyone who sees it will never forget. I, I think we're not going out on any limb to say it's the best horror film of the first decade of the 21st century, but to me... It's really the harbinger of what was to come in this new international golden age of horror. Right, right. That this is uh, a, uh, yes, that all countries learned how to do horror films uh, uh, and and be able to sell them uh, to a market because horror translates internationally. Fear is fear. Once you have a... Uh, it's on a visceral level, and we experience it globally. Though sometimes when you transfer it from one shore to another, as they attempted to do with uh, yeah. let the right one in uh, and translated it into let me in, there's something missing, right? When you're connecting yeah. deeply with some uh, part of, of, of a local community, especially a community for whom tradition and the past and history is alive in a way that is really foreign to most Americans. It's, it's hard to transplant those stories here, even though, yeah. as you say, fear is still fear. Uh, what's, what's number eight for you? Uh, number eight, of course, 1968. You think 
uh, horror movies have been going on for some time, and yet here is a movie that develops a whole new, uh, basically, uh, class of horror movies. The first zombie movie, Dawn of the Dead, by George Romero. No, don't you mean Night of the Living Dead? I mean Night of the Living Dead, not Dawn of the Dead. Yes, yes Night of the Living Dead, the very first zombie movie. And uh, how effectively he shot it over four weekends just outside of Philadelphia. And you look at it and it's actually uh, you can see it's like he maybe had two lights working and the 16 millimeter camera. And some of the performances are wacky, but but just, uh, you know, the innovation to come up with, oh, you don't be scary, undead. And they walk slowly and they're relentless. And to come up with this. Uh, after, you know, how many people have sat down and thought, oh, I need a new scary subgenre of horror. Uh, what would it be? $114,000 budget. Film grosses in its initial release up $30 million worldwide on a $114,000 budget. Those are not adjusted dollars. That's 1968 $30 million. Good Lord. And, of course, it's been a cult classic and a moneymaker ever since. Um, yeah. What what I think again is interesting. Uh, again, for any kind of these groundbreaking horror films, so often heavily criticized and panned uh, upon its release. Um, yeah. Especially because of its explicit gore. And yet, has history been kind to it? Well, it was one of the films selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry because it was deemed quote culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Yeah, <laughs> see, well, exactly because and because so many people. I mean, you wouldn't have The Walking Dead. You wouldn't have any of the other zombie movies without this uh, this one. And I don't think anyone else could even like to conceive of a whole new uh, scary monster, basically. So the, to have the but, zombie. But it, it, to me, it comes back to the premise, right? That is so brilliant. You work a premise that fits perfectly the resources you have. George, George, exactly. It's George Romero's first film, and he figured out, what do I have access to? What premise makes sense with what I have access to? And then also, though, what premise uh, allows an audience to understand what these characters are feeling at all times, even if the performances aren't necessarily polished professional performances? And so right. this, this simple plot, seven people trapped in a rural farmhouse in western Pennsylvania, which is attacked by a large and growing group of unnamed living dead, um, <laughs> that's all you need. And then... Uh, there's such wonderful subtext to it. Yes, right? absolutely. The, and visual imagery of the uh, the police coming out with the guard dogs, you know, replicating the civil rights uh, absolutely. violence and all that well, the, sort of thing. So here's a black and white film. There's some, some telling thematic subtext there. And mm -hmm. shocking, in 1968, the only one to survive, the black man, right? Yeah. That's subversive. Yeah, yeah. But then before you get to pat yourself on the back for living, <laughs> before you get to give yourself moral licensing for living in a, in a, in a country where the black man's the only one to survive the horror film, uh-oh, the sheriff's posse arrives. Yeah. He yeah, survives yeah. the zombie apocalypse only to be the victim of racism. <laughs> How ironic. Uh, so, well, that's number eight for yeah. you. Number uh, eight for me, uh, getting back to this idea of international, uh, is mm -hmm. Ringu, 
1998 Japanese psychological horror film directed by Hideo Nakata. Uh, adapted, I don't know this one. Ad- adapted from the novel Ring uh, by Koji oh. Suzuki, which would then uh, be made into the American The Ring films. The Ring, Ring. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that's the original name of it. It uh, draws from uh, an old Japanese folk tale. And uh, the film follows a TV reporter and single mother who is investigating a series of deaths surrounding a cursed videotape. Production on this thing took about nine months because they produced it and its sequel at the same time. And they were released in Japan at the same time. That's how sure of this they were. Um, Wow. Uh, the film, I love the opening to the film. Two teenagers are talking about a videotape recorded by a boy, uh, and it's fabled to bear a curse that kills the viewer seven days after watching it. Well, right. one of the girls then reveals to her friend that a week ago, she and three of her friends watched a weird tape and received a call after watching it. And no sooner does she tell this to her friend than she is killed by an unseen force as her friend watches on horrified. That's an opening to a movie right there. That is a fantastic um, opening. And, uh, you know, critics have talked a lot about how Ring is about how modern Japanese culture is in a fight to the death conflict with traditional uh, Japanese culture. And right. it's also to me about a modern ambivalence uh, that they were seeing in the workforce uh, of women in the workforce towards the concept of motherhood. This was really challenging for their culture to deal with uh, on, a, uh. on, on a subtextual level. Anyway, that coupled right. with the way ghosts are, tr- how they are truly alive in Japanese culture, to me those are yeah. elements that could never be transplanted to these shores in, in, in the American remake. Um, and I got to tell you, I saw this film at home uh, on 133 on, on video with friends. Uh, and I'm sitting there with guys on the couch. And when the true nature of the videotape is revealed, I literally almost wet myself. It's that <laughs> goddamn scary. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I, of course, love the production design of this as well. I mean, the idea of just... Uh, a la ghost, you know, normally the ghost is in white, but here to have her hair cover her face for most of the time as almost uh, the, you know, traditional long sheet uh, that is the stereotypical ghost is a fantastic uh, uh, both feminine and old world yet modern. It's really great. The woman with whom I lived at the time was able to ape that look to a T and would do it uh, in the middle of the night for the sole purpose of scaring the living hell out of me and did and did just that repeatedly. So we are no longer together. Uh, Number seven, (laughs) Dean Hagland, what's number seven on your list? Uh, Number seven, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, uh, well, I had a switch, but uh, uh, it was, I was thinking of the thing, but it actually what scared me more, Candyman. Do you remember this one? I do remember Candyman. So Candyman, you say uh, Candyman three times in a mirror, and this spirit appears, and uh, it's malevolent, and it's terrifying. And also, what was great about this, I mean, there's so many uh, visual elements. The toilet full of bees, uh, it's set in the projects 
of, uh, I think it's supposed to be Philadelphia, but maybe it was Brooklyn. Right, this is an urban horror film, which is uh, quite, kind of sets it apart. Yeah, yeah. And, and how about that musical score by Philip Glass? You know, you hear that minimal, minimalist uh, music all the time, but to put that to a uh, full-on monster, scary, modern, urban uh, uh, horror movie... It was a fantastic marrying. So, so uh, Candyman is my number seven. Number seven for me is Toby Hooper's 1974 landmark, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, God, yes. Who, this is the ad line. Who will survive and what will be left of them? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And that's kind of how I that... felt when I walked out of the, the, the theater upon seeing it. Um <laughs> Upon its uh, October 1974 release, it was banned outright in many uh, counties and countries. Uh, numerous theaters uh, stopped showing the film in response to complaints about its violence. Uh, it re- received kindly, we'll call it, a mixed reception from critics. And yet it was enormously profitable, grossing over $30 million at the domestic box office, Thirty million in the U.S. without adjusted on a budget of only three hundred thousand uh, dollars. It's credited with originating several elements common to the slasher genre, including its use of power tools as murder weapons. Somebody had to start that, uh, and the <laughs> yes. characterization of the killer as a large, hulking, faceless uh, figure. Uh, it's of course overcome that early pan. History has been kind to it. It's been appraised as one of the greatest horror films of all time. I saw it in film school more than 12 years after its release, knowing all about it, and it still left me wrung out and raw. Like, I wasn't <laughs> sure what was left of me, even though I knew all about it, right? Right, um, yeah. I, uh, I, I love how it plays into our fear of being isolated in unknown terrain and the danger of strangers. Don't trust strangers even when you need their help, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and look, the problem is never with an original. It's with the countless craven imitators and the things that people thought made this successful were too easy, like the power tools, too easy to imitate, right? Right, um, yeah, and so you had a ton, and they're still, they're still making them. Uh, Hills Have Eyes, Devil's Rejects, all that kind of thing. Slightly uh, based on the, or inspired by the real-life Ed Gein, uh, Toby Hooper uh, said that it was changes in the cultural and political landscape that were the central influences on the, on the film. His intentional uh, misinformation that, quote, the film you are about to see is true, because it says that, but it was right. intentional misinformation, was a response to his feeling lied to by our government about things that were going all over on all over the world, including Watergate, the 73 oil crisis, the massacres and atrocities in the Vietnam War. So he said, ah. screw it, I'm going to lie to people, and I'm going to make them feel exactly like I feel by, about being ah. lied to. Um, Interesting. The, the lack of sentimentality and the brutality of things that Hooper noticed while watching local news and the graphic coverage... Uh, which he describes as as showing brains spilled all over the road in the local news, uh, right. led to his belief that man 
is always the real monster just wearing a different face. So I decided to put a literal mask on the monster in my film. Um, and you know, <laughs> as I looked back at this list, I realized, uh, you know, I kind of think the late 70s might just be the high point of motion picture horror. May I already mentioned, although it didn't quite make my list, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake, here's uh, Chainsaw Massacre. But because of all the social upheaval at the time yeah. and what we were wrestling with uh, culturally, uh, it might just have been the, the high point. So that's my number seven. Uh, yeah. I, I would think so, because it's also uh, uh, the time of Roger Corman and Hammer Films, and they, uh, you know, churning out one after another, even if they're uh, uh, mere uh, sad sequels and, and replications of other horror uh, things, I could see that happening. I'm reminded of a hilarious uh, guy making a trailer up in Vancouver that was supposed to be the next Chances, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it was about a tow truck driver out on the lonely roads of British Columbia who uh, murdered everybody who broke down. And uh, the movie's title was Chunk Blower. Because... I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> yes. Do you remember that? I don't, I don't know if it ever got made. I know they made the trailer and uh, basically used the device, which is known in stunt world as the chunk blower, which blows the back of your head off and you fill it full of chunks. And it goes all over. And so he, the guy had that. He had that air compressor device, which he used over and over again in the trailer, and then just called the movie Chunk Blower, named after the one special effect device that he had that he was going to build his horror movie around. Not surprisingly, we need to pick up the pace. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> number my, six. Uh, number six, Dean My Michael. number six and my number five are closely related because it's the 1931 uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula a uh, fantastic classic where uh, Bela Lugosi, of course, had to learn it all, all his words phonetically, uh, giving it the extra chills. And uh, that, of course, was a remake of the 1922, I looked it up, Nosferatu, which was the very first uh, vampire movie starring Max Schreck, which is the German word for terror, Schreck. And uh, it was rumored that he himself uh, played the role so well because he was a vampire. Yeah, he so actually Nos was one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Nosferatu and Dracula are my uh, five and six, six and, and five. five. Six and five, yeah. re respectively. Well, that uh, helped. If you would like to take more time to talk about chunk blowers, <laughs> you may now. Well, there's, yeah, I got more to talk about when we get closer up. <laughs> Number six for me, Repulsion, 1965. Roman Polanski's uh, low, oh, yes. low budget and extremely popular psychological horror tale starring Catherine Deneuve as a young woman who is left alone by her vacationing sister at their apartment and begins reliving traumas of her past in horrific ways. Uh, it was uh, shot in London. It was Polanski's first English language film, his second feature length film altogether, following Knife in the Water. Uh, the title refers to the repulsion that uh, the main character feels about human sexuality and the repulsion visited upon her suitors when they pursue her. Um, ah. This film is so rich with subtext uh, involving uh, an exploration, uh, unspoken, of sexual abuse she experienced as a child, which is the basis for her neuroses and her breakdown. 
and uh, and also the psychological and social dangers of refusing to conform. That's what's interesting about how if you refuse to conform, you are inviting certain kind of breakdown because the pressures are so severe. And boy, this is interesting terrain in the hands of uh, someone like Polanski. In fact, it's it's terrifying in the hands of of uh, you know uh, Polanski to be dealing with this topic of the path of femininity that a woman is supposed to follow and the breakdown right. that might happen if she fails to do so. Because let's face it, this is a man who witnessed firsthand what happens when people are too willing to conform, right? Having survived yeah. uh, the Holocaust, but watching all of his family and loved ones killed in front of him. So uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's shot, like I said, on a really low budget in black and white, but by a great cinematographer, Gilbert Taylor, who had already shot both Dr. Strangelove and A Hard Day's Night. Uh, uh, both and using the black and white, yeah, he knew how to light it and all that. So even though it's really low budget, it it's it looks spectacular. Um, and what I love is it increasingly uses the perspective of its protagonist. We're sharing her worldview. Uh, so there's what we think are probably dream sequences that are particularly intense. Um, as a result, um, I'll just say this: even when I saw this film for a second time because I, the film's about so much stuff, I wanted to watch it a second time. And I was watching it in a home, a well-lit home, again on home video, watching with two other grown men, and we still, all of us, screamed in terror <laughs> because the film is that scary. Wow. So, well, that's fascinating um, that you should pick that. Well, uh, so I got five. No, I got to get, no, that's my number six. I now, remember, you did six and five. So now I'm at number five. Right. Okay. And then we'll be caught up. Uh, and okay. We'll, and we'll do our, our, our top four with the 80 seconds that are left. Okay. Number five. <laughs> no. Number five. Uh, I almost didn't put this because I've seen it so many times that I wouldn't say that it's scary anymore. But it's Steven mm. Spielberg's Jaws. Right. I, I was surprised to even think of that. Like I went through, oh, other people's scary list. Jaws technically is a horror movie. Yeah, and and it's hard to throw yourself back to what it was like the first time you saw it. Um, but yeah. look, it launched summer blockbusters. It did prey on our fear of the deep uh, right. that really affected people and affects people to this day, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was working at a swimming resort. Everybody screamed shark anytime a minnow nibbled their toe. They all freaked the hell out that summer. Well, well, at the same time, it introduced a real multifaceted ensemble character acting into the genre. And, uh, and it explored the ways, uh, again, like what Toby Hooper was saying, uh, that human failings, monstrous human failings of greed and bureaucracy and short-sightedness are the true evils in our world and it's those evils that leave us susceptible to all that we cannot control in nature, right? Well, exactly, and, yes. They and, try to close the beach, and, but we've got to keep it open for July 4th. That's the government talking. Yeah, and, and so I love that the struggles involved uh, uh, in the making of the film mirror and inform the story being told, right? These characters could really drop into these conflicts uh, very well. It is surprisingly still scary, uh, I guess, 
And uh, it, it's, but it, but it is one of the films on this list that everyone can enjoy, even if they don't find it scary. It works that well as a character film as well. Absolutely, and there's some real good laughs in there. And uh, you know, the like you said, the shark, the shark uh, failed as uh, uh, originally as planned. It was supposed to be a big mechanical shark, and you had lots of shots of it in the storyboard, but because it didn't work right. Spielberg worked around that limitation and actually made a scarier movie than he probably originally intended. It's interesting because you've always said he's a great first act director. And yeah, and, 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 and yet here's, here's a film where structurally it does work first, second, and third act, but significantly not the way it was originally scripted to work, right? Because the yeah. shark's supposed to show up in the first act, but it didn't work, so they knew they had to save it for the third act. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, so yeah. And I also say he's the best second unit director. Yeah. That ever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so uh, number four for you, sir. Well, look at you. We're back to Roman Polanski, and nothing scarier than the 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 beginning of all uh, uh, devil and Satan movies. Uh, Rosemary's Baby. This is a 1968 movie with Mia Farrow as a young couple moves into this. Uh, what is now a very posh New York neighborhood. And uh, all the neighbors are weird and occurrences start happening. And then she's suddenly mysteriously pregnant and uh, everybody uh, starts gathering around. And uh, if you want to see uh, uh, how to compose frames of movie shots with multiple uh, characters sitting and standing, look no further than this movie just in terms of still shots of just the camera lingering on your weird uh, neighbors and just having that stillness uh, be the horror. That is what frightens me the most about this movie. I, of course, love it. Um, though, to me, it's a comedy, not a, a horror film. I also, what? Really? I, I also don't even think that it's scary. Uh, I, I, but I, to me, it is a comedy, and it's always tough to tell with uh, P Polanski, honestly. Um, but if I was going to have a second Polanski, and if, I, if this list expanded out to 20, I would have had The Tenant instead of Rosemary's Baby, because I think it's both funnier and scarier, while still oh. using the same tone. Um, as, but on the other hand, you picked a film with John Cassavetes in it, uh, and I think that's the first time that's ever happened on any list we've done. So hats off to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So there you go. Well, that's interesting. The tenant, eh? Yeah. That's a scary thing. And you see, this is a comedy, and yet she does. She is giving birth to Satan, theoretically. Um, but well, I don't know. I saw it, and I got chills, and I was freaked out. Now I saw it by myself, and it was late night TV again. So maybe you know, I should just not watch those movies at two in the morning. <laughs> uh, my number four is a subversive film about racial violence in the United States and the horrors of the Vietnam War. It's from 1968. It's George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, and we already, uh, and we already talked about it. Yeah, we sure have. So what's your God, number that's three? Your num that's your number four. My number three, of course, what other movie uh, started it all for uh, in terms of jump scares and teen screams than Halloween, the very first one with Jamie Lee Curtis? Uh, that guy was relentless. It was uh, frightening. Uh, well done uh, as a movie. 
And uh, that, I remember, giving me the heebie-jeebies for quite some time, particularly anybody in a hockey mask, which you would see often being in Canada. Well, but wait a minute. I thought you said Halloween. I'm sorry, what? Didn't you, it wasn't your Halloween, not Friday the 13th, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Halloween. So, yeah, not so, Friday, the so Friday the 13th is the hockey mask. Uh, yeah, what was the... Halloween is a Captain Kirk mask. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's a You're bleach right. Captain Kirk mask. That's, the, uh, that's the, the, the little trivia that people don't realize, is that William Shatner's face appears throughout uh, Halloween. Anyway, well, I'm glad you had that, because I, I thought about going and re-watching Halloween just for the purpose of, like I said, having a John Carpenter on there. And how about the score that he wrote himself for that? Anyway, um, ah. yeah, and it's, uh, it's surprising, I think, to people who grew up with kind of the slasher genre to go back and watch something like Halloween and realize just what a great movie it is, right? It really is, yeah. Uh, and, and, and to see those tropes uh, originally laid out how original that stuff was. Um, one of my ten favorite science fiction films of all time is number three on my list of top ten horror films of all time. Well, there could only be one horror sci-fi crossover that I could think of. And that's, of course, Spectres from 2005, that- starring Dean Haglund, Tucker Smallwood, and... Mer- no, it's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking. Wouldn't that have been no. awesome? Uh, <laughs> it's, again, from this high point of the late 70s, 1979, from director Ridley Scott, Alien. Yeah. I, yeah I, I love it as a working-class view of what life aboard a starship in outer space would really be like. Uh, yeah. I love it as a futuristic haunted house movie because I always loved haunted house movies, right? Going back to Abbott and Costello. I mean, yeah. I, I love it as an ensemble comedy. I love how it plays into our primal fear of the unknown, of our own insignificance yeah. in the cosmos, of our distrust that machines might take over. I mean, think about that. It starts a franchise, spawns countless offspring in the direction of both the alien and the tech run amok subgenres. Yeah. And a strong female action protagonist in a mainstream movie in 1979. Um, Yeah. And in fact, there's an interesting, uh, an incredibly interesting feminist reading of this film. Uh, And certainly the monster is this archaic mother archetype. And the yeah, film sure. and the film really capitalizes on deep-seated masculine fears of rape and penetration. Um, there, the, I, I, I'm I'm going on record as saying there will never be a better fusion of uh, horror and science fiction. Uh, I would agree with you, and and what a great way. Uh, one of the problems when every time you make a horror movie is how do you contain your characters to be in proximity with your scary monster. Cause normally your, your flight or <laughs> your run response is just to get in a car and drive really fast to get the hell away from this thing. But to put it in a self-contained spaceship that only, you know, has to self-destruct you are, you are literally dependent on that as your life source and you have an escape pod. But even that, uh, is spoiler alert, a thrilling, uh, third act the um, the the cleverness of that in and alone of where to stick your monster in space is a, such a great idea. Yeah, you know it, when they spun off the 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 second franchise, the Alien versus Predator franchise, 
they yeah. should have been paying attention to what you're saying right now, that it works best in this enclosed environment. But how do you maintain that? It's why you could only make so many haunted house movies, right? I give you a million dollars right. if you can spend a night here, right? But most of us right. would go, okay, fuck it. It's not worth it. I'm out of here. Um, but here they couldn't go anywhere. So if you really want to do something like that, they shouldn't have done Alien versus Predator. They should have done Alien versus Die Hard. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. The guys exactly. have locked down the building. You've got some people working against them. And in the midst of this is Alien. <laughs> Taking out now both that of would them. have been fantastic. <laughs> I think there's still room for that one. Uh, so uh, uh, do we have your number three yet? Oh, you did uh, Halloween. We're at your number two. My Halloween. Your number two. My number two. Yes. Now this one uh, made for I think the budget was twenty five thousand dollars, and it's from my favorite Winnipeg director, Guy Madden. This is Tales uh, from a Gimli Hospital. Now I don't know if you've seen this. It's you've talked typical. about this. This is disturbing. I did tell you. Just reading about this is disturbing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, so frightening. The imagery is so scary. Uh, Guy Men still shoots in black and white using vintage cameras and uh, uh, obscure lenses that he finds lying around. And uh, this tale uh, set in a Gimli hospital. I'm not even sure what the hell the narrative is half the time, which is typical to a Guy Men film. But the imagery, particularly the rocking of the single light bulb back and forth in the hospital, and the, every time the light... Uh, flies back to the back of the room the the other patients have changed position and are coming closer but in still motif holy crap just that scene alone is frightening okay that's i'm watching that before halloween that's the one that's uh th that's my ritual this year that's my all hallows eve of viewing tales tales oh, from the gimli hospital uh m yeah. my number two uh relates to your number three in that uh, you could not uh, have had John Carpenter's Halloween if you did not have this movie, much like you could not have had the star of Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis, unless you had her mother, Janet Lee. From ah. 1960, Psycho. This so is, if you'll pardon the Freudian expression, Dean, the mother of the slasher genre. That's true. Groundbreaking Shit. in terms of structure, mm -hmm. style, psychology, and in its treatment of sexuality, the film centers right. on the encounter between a secretary, played by Janet Lee, who ends up at a secluded motel after stealing money from her employer. So we have an embezzler and an adulterer who is our protagonist, we think. We uh, think. And she uh, then meets up at the secluded hotel with the motel's disturbed, yet, yet oddly charming and touching, owner-manager Norman Bates. Uh, right. And in its aftermath, right, uh, Janet Lee, every bit the movie star, um, and never more so than in this film, dies yeah. dies in the first act the movie I that know. we think we've been watching is not the movie we came to watch at all and uh and and that was horribly shocking to people um on the level that that you just that didn't happen you just couldn't do that it really I, affected people and made you suddenly realize that anything could happen at any time yeah it's um, so set you off balance yeah that you can't believe it and of course that shower scene 
uh, what is it, 63 shots? Well, so uh, so the thing, think about this. Like, it sets you, like you said, it sets you off balance. Well, this is what the movie does so brilliantly every step of the way. How about the casting of Anthony Perkins? It's hard for us to remember this now, but he was consistently up until the point, every, every time out, the youthful matinee idol, good boy love interest. Oh, Up right. until that time, he would never be seen that way ever again. Uh, no. And uh, and then how about uh, yeah, what you're saying? Like the 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 thing to me about the shower scene and why it's so unsettling even to this day is not just the style of how it's shot, but the very idea that it's playing on our desire for shower scenes. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. We to now see your star of the shower. We yeah. are now taught to fear what we desire, and I know, right, and that is uh, d- that is a nasty, nasty trick that Hitchcock uh, plays on us. You know, look, just the images of the house up on the hill yeah. are scary. Taxidermy is scary. Uh, I know, and yes, showering without a good lock on the door will always be scary. We will all, all of us who've ever seen that film, think about it whenever we're in a strange place showering without a lock on the door. <laughs> I think, think of something else. You know, I've been, I watched that again recently uh, when I was going through some sort of Hitchcock-y slight marathon, and there was, um, uh, I, uh, because he used the television film crew from his series uh, in order to uh, meet the budget demands, it also feels more intimate than a lot of the other movies like the birds and stuff where he had a film crew and they were shooting more in the 1950s technicolor wider panorama stuff and because this is like a tv crew a lot of the shots and stuff are tighter and more intimate and that also gives it much more dread than say the birds which is another hitchcock classic but to me not well, that's, that was just that's weird. interesting. So you're you're right, and and I think that's one of the reasons I was kind of struck by the fact that look, this did not get great reviews when it came out. It was mixed to panned by critics, and yet it got four Academy Award nominations for Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Janet Lee, Best Black and White Cinematography, and Art Direction. And to me, you're absolutely right. The reason that it could get these, despite the bad reviews, was because of the intimacy that this film created that really stood out. And that's what the Academy sought to reward. Um, I, you know, the, the nightmare uh, side of every boy's love affair with his mother, right, makes this kind of the, the, what was called the, the first psychoanalytical thriller. And, right. uh, and, you know, and again, operating on this premise of where there's fear, there's desire, right? This... Yeah. His fear of his mother masks his desire for his mother. So it's, it is really rich, and yet it has a great sense of humor about itself. And like you said, the intimacy is kind of what stays with you and keeps you. If you just turn this film on and there's Marion Crane in a hotel room with Norman Bates, you're watching it. You're sitting down and watching it because the scenes yeah. are delicious. It's so good. So good. So what's your number so, one? Well, I got to think it's our same number one because nobody's mentioned it up to now. Uh, and my uh, one of my favorite Stanley Kubrick films with Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, it's The Shining. I might say that it's my favorite Kubrick film to have Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall in it. 
of all of his <laughs> I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Well, What's it? crazy is it's not even one of my I mean look he only made 11 films but it's not my favorite Kubrick it's not Clockwork Orange it's not 2001 it's not Dr. Strangelove but it is the one of his films that I want to watch every single month and and it's the one where the more I learn about Stanley Kubrick's making of it the scarier the movie itself actually becomes oh Really? I, I mean, I, like, I, like the moment you notice, uh, you know, because you'll notice stuff. There, there, there's no end to the things that you can pay attention to and notice in this film. But how about when Danny's playing on the carpet outside room 237 and the ball rolls out to him? And the, you notice that from the wide shot to the close-up on him, the patterning on the carpet has changed. So it's this yes. huge continuity error. But of course, what it meant was Kubrick stopped and had the crew come in, pull up the entire floor, and relay it with different carpeting just to shoot the close-up. So it's intentional. And that sort of shit makes it really unsettling. You realize yeah. that nothing is as you thought it was, no matter how many times you've seen the film. When when Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance is going in to meet with uh, Barry Nelson's character, right, to get take the caretaker job, and there's that third yeah. guy in the room, and in every shot, his clothes are changing. Yeah, I know, right? So it's completely, and as you say, you know, each one of these films has it resonates in terms of feminism or or things going on culturally. This one resonates on so many levels, perhaps because it's so unsettling and so weird like there's so well, like what and is, because what is because we don't understand what the point of view is that we are supposed to quote-unquote hold right right roger ebert wrote these questions who is the reliable observer whose idea of events can we trust it is this right. elusive open-mindedness that makes kubrick's film so strangely disturbing and I would add it's that openness uh, that makes it continuously and ever deepeningly disturbing. Right. Yeah, because as time goes on, it resonates more and more with uh, like you can watch it today and think it's about today's issues of, of uh, terrorism, of uh, political upheaval. All of that stuff still can be found elements throughout this movie it it like so many of these others mixed reviews uh when it first uh, opened it was the first of his films to open wide less than a month after its two city memorial day limited run um for people who don't know in the film jack torrance a writer and recovering alcoholic takes a job as an off-season caretaker at the isolated overlook hotel his young son possesses psychic abilities and is able to see things from the past and the future, such as the ghosts who haunt the hotel. Uh, Sometime after settling in, the family is trapped in the hotel by a snowstorm, and Jack gradually becomes influenced, we believe, by a ghostly presence and descends into madness and ultimately violence. Um, There's been much much made about reading it as a treatise on the genocide against Native Americans, as a treatise on the Holocaust... And the they tr- made a documentary about that. And the truth is there is much to support these readings, as well as countless others. And, and they almost always come back, though, to the nature of evil and the duality of man. 
Uh, and those are topics that you can continue to delve into round and round, viewing after viewing, much like little Danny wheeling around the long haunting corridors or Jack descending further into impotent rage-filled powerlessness. There's, right, exactly. there's always going to be more to see, to hear, uh, to realize, to learn, and uh, with, with each new uh, viewing, this film becomes more terrifying. Well, and that's a, uh, what a great work of art's supposed to be, right? Something that you can look on again and again, and still have it uh, have it have it have power, and more power with each interpretation, and and more power to us because although we're over time by uh, a handful of minutes already, yeah. not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I'm so glad we did this. This was even more fun than I anticipated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So well, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna see the ring room. Ringu, yeah, go see the original Ringu. I'll see uh, Tales from the Gimli Hospital. And yeah. uh, we'll be in person on next week's show. Yay! Face to face here in Los Angeles, a big city with a Spanish name. Uh, <laughs> until right. then, I'm Phil Lairness. I'm Dean Haglund. See you then. Promotional consideration paid for by Empire State Gas. From farm to pump, we've got great gas. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor Right through the door and all around the wall A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob Belated spoiler alert